Well, good evening. I hope it's okay if I stand down here. It's a small group. It's easier to communicate with you all and see you all. So I will stay down here. Um, I guess the first question, though, is why these services? Um, why Advent midweek services? Why this format? Um, and I think I come back just to the idea that this is, for so many of us, such a busy time. Right? There's so much going on with our kids. There's so much going on, grandkids, activities to get to, shopping to do, gifts to wrap, things to bake, things to get ready for the holidays. Um, that we can get lost in sort of all that busyness. Right? That we have this time of year as, as a gift to prepare. Um, and so I just wanted to make sure that the congregation had some space and had some time uh, to prepare for Christmas, right, and, and to prepare your hearts and, and to have some quiet time and some contemplative time even among the busyness of the month. Um, I think it's also true, at least it is for me, I don't know if it is for you, but as the days get darker um, and shorter, I tend to be more contemplative, more thoughtful, more even melancholic. Um, I know they might diagnose that now as seasonal affective disorder, but you know, I think as 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 we get into the darkness, yeah, <laughs> I think it changes our mood, um, and that's just natural, you know. And so I think it's good to to have some space to consider that, um, even as we approach Christmas, and you know, we're expecting it to be joyful. Um, but sometimes the season leading up to it's not always as joyful as, as it could be, and we live in that darkness, but we look forward to the light. Uh, as we begin our service, I'm going to start actually with Psalm 103, and I'm going to read it from the hymnal if you would like to follow along. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all God's benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the grave and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. O Lord, you provide vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. You made known your ways to Moses and your works to the children of Israel. Lord, you are full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You will not always accuse us, nor will you keep your anger forever. You have not dealt with us according to our sins, nor repaid us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is your steadfast love for those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so you have compassion for those who fear you, O Lord. For you know well how we are formed. You remember that we are but dust. As for mortals, their days are like the grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it is gone, and its place shall know, shall know it no more. But your steadfast love, O Lord, is forever with those who fear you and your righteousness 
is for the children's children, for those who keep your covenant and remember to do your commandments. The Lord's throne is established in heaven. God's dominion rules over all. Bless the Lord, you angels and mighty ones who do God's bidding, who obey the voice of God's word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts of heaven, your servants who do God's will. Bless the Lord, all you works of God in all places where God rules. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Our service begins on page 243 um, and follows, follows from there. Nope, that's wrong. It's 238, sorry. I had my marker in the wrong place. It's 238 and follows from there. So we begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. God of all mercy and consolation, come to the help of your people, turning us from our sin to live for you alone. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit that we may confess our sin, receive your forgiveness, and grow into the fullness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, you probably saw in the newsletter if you read it, you know, but I wanted to kind of contemplate and kind of talk to you uh, these nights about what's traditionally called the four last things. Uh, and there's a long tradition in the church. It's really, it started in the medieval church. Uh, but the Sundays of Advent were reserved for preaching on the four last things, um, which were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And so even in the medieval church, all of the clergy were required to preach on those topics on the Sundays of Advent. And so that tradition kind of went on through the Reformation, and it was dropped later, closer to modern times. Um, and so some of that still kind of lives on in our Advent traditions. Uh, we talk about the second coming of Christ in Advent. Uh, we look forward in Advent. So some of that, that emphasis, we still see it in Advent, but specific talk about the four last things uh, has, has kind of dropped off. And so tonight, I want to talk about the first of the four last things, which is death. Uh, but I want to say before I get started that, you know, this is sensitive. And, and we know that death and loss are always personal, um, always painful. And, and always, there's always that journey of grief that goes with losing someone. Uh, in our congregation, in our community, you know, I think we've felt that dearly in the last few weeks, the last few months, over the last year, just that personal nature of death and that the hardships that come with it. And, and so as I talk kind of theologically about death, um, it's not an easy answer to anything, right? There's no easy theological answer to make everything better. Um, we go through the grief, uh, but there's no just easy pat answer that's gonna fix everything. 
And so I don't want you to hear me saying anything like that tonight. Um, rather, we talk about death on theological terms, on biblical terms, really to, to get an understanding of where our hope comes from. You know, how, as we, how are we as Christians to approach death? And how is that different from someone who's not a Christian? Right, why do we grieve with hope in our hearts? Right, why do we see something beyond death? And so theology helps us work that out. Right, it doesn't solve all the questions for us. It doesn't even answer the question, why has this happened to so-and-so? But it helps us understand why we might have some hope through it. So as I said, Advent is a time about considering these last things. Uh, even kind of how the church year, the cycle goes, right? The end is the beginning, and the beginning is the end. Uh, and in some ways, that's a reflection of our lives, right? We're born, and we're going to die. Um, there's no way around it. But also, we say, death is also a kind of new beginning for us. And so our church here in Advent reflects that, right? That even though we're talking about the last things, the things to come, the things at the end of time, it's actually a kind of beginning for us, a beginning into a new kind of eternity um, and a new hope and a new promise. Uh, it seems to me, though, that that the practice of considering these last things in Advent might be good for us. Um, as a culture, and generally speaking, right, as people, as humans, we no longer see death like we would have 200, 300 years ago. Uh, because of modern medicine, right, we live longer. Um, we tend to be healthier, live stronger, and death tends to happen either in hospitals, tends to happen in accidents, right? But very rarely seems to happen within the communities, within us, um, that it's right in front of us. Uh, you know, 300 years ago, you would live in a small community if someone in your household, someone in your community died, you know, you as a community, you dealt with it, right? And even when someone died in your household, right, that you put them on your kitchen table, on your dining room table, uh, you washed the body, you took care of them, you took care of the body until someone in the community could make a casket and you could transport it to the church for the service and then and then bury the body. It was all on you and the community. And so dealing with death, it was a regular occurrence in households, in communities, in a way that it's not, right? For various reasons and good reasons, we've outsourced a lot of that kind of dealing with death to professionals. But what that means is we ourselves don't see it. Right, it's something that's kind of hidden, something that's not common for us. And when it is, it's often unexpected. Um, 
and it's often someone just very close to us. And so we just don't see it in our communities like we, we would have 200, 300 years ago, like we have for all of history. And so because we don't see it as much, we tend then to not think about it theologically. We tend to not think about it for ourselves, right? That because it's not so much a reality in our life anymore, something that we see often, we don't often ask the question about our own death, you know, and, and what does it mean for us? What does it mean for those around us? What does the church say about this? Okay, so I think picking up that practice in Advent is valuable for that reason. Right, it, it, it forces us to think about the realities that are coming that we might not otherwise see or want to see. Uh, and so getting into this, we ask, well, what does the Bible say to us about death? Um, and death itself as a term seems to be used mostly two ways in the Bible. Right, there's this metaphorical way, this poetic way that death is used in the Bible, that death is that which opposes God. Right? God's the source of life. And so anything that cuts us off from God represents this power of death. But then it's also used literally, right, as our return to the dust from which we're created, uh, when our bodies and souls are no longer united and we return to the ground. And so those two uses, they get interchanged and mixed throughout different scriptures. And so in what we're going to read tonight from the Bible, you're going to see kind of both of those ways of talking about death being used. So within scripture, the first uh, passage I wanted to look at tonight was from Romans chapter 6. And I'm starting with verse 3. The St. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of a sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is free from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what do we see here? Paul connects baptism and I'm glad I'm right here next to the font. He connects baptism to death. Right? And, and he says that when we're baptized, that we're united to Christ 
in his death. Which is to say, whatever is happening to Christ, that's also our future. And it's our identity. So Paul's point here is going to be, thus if Christ is raised from the dead, then also you will be raised from the dead. Right? Because you are united to him in your baptism. In other words, Paul is saying, your real death, your first death, was at baptism. Right? That's when the old you was washed away and something new was created in you through Christ. Uh, Martin Luther actually uses that language. He says that our baptisms are our big death. Right? And then the moment we leave this life, that's the little death. Right? Because at our baptisms, all of the curse that comes with death, this idea of we're forever lost, or we're facing punishment, or we're separated, all of that's washed away. Right? And instead, we're promised eternal life. We're promised an eternal connection to God. Uh, and so it also works out for Paul then, right, that, that we live this life no longer under the dread of death, right? no longer under its curse, because there's that hope that comes after, right? that, that death now becomes something else. Uh, and what Paul will say is that it becomes that resurrection. And so we talked about there are two ways the Bible uses the word death as that metaphorical power that opposes God, but also as that literal return of our bodies to the dust. Right? And, and so that metaphorical power that opposes God, Paul is saying Christ has entirely defeated that in our life. Right? There's nothing that stands between you and God now. There's nothing that separates you two. You're forever connected to God. But that, that future moment of the defeat of death as our return to the ground, right, that that's coming. Right? There's coming that moment when Christ is going to call all of us from the grave, right, and we will die no longer. And so the present and the future in us kind of meet together, and we live this out, right? We live no longer under the threat of death or the fear of death, because God has shown us that he is going to give us life in Christ. Uh, another passage, a passage we read at funeral services, I think, is too good not to read now, but it's 1 Corinthians 15. Right, and St. Paul begins, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which you are also being saved. That if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless 
you've come to believe this in vain. For I handed to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. All right, so here Paul began saying, Listen, the central message of what I have received from God is that Christ has been raised from the dead. Right, and he's saying, this has historically happened. This is true. Cephas saw it. These multitudes of people have seen it. The apostles have seen it. That Christ is risen from the dead. Right, so for Paul, everything rests on that that Christ was actually risen from the dead. So in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If raised, then if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right, so making this connection to the resurrection Paul says, if Christ hasn't been resurrected, then we have no faith. We're pitiful people. We believe the lie. Right? And he says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then those who have died in Christ, well, they're perished. They're gone. Right? But he's pointing us now to something different. He's saying there is hope. Right? That Christ is raised from the dead. Therefore, those who have perished, those who are dead, are not lost. They're not gone. Nor are we in this life hopeless. So in verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Right? The resurrection is the first fruits. Uh, Christ is the first of the harvest, right? What has happened to Christ on Easter Sunday is going to happen to the rest of us. He was first, and the rest of us are going to follow. And then in verse 21, For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Right, so in us, we are all descendants of Adam, Right, so we all die in Adam. Right? We all return to the dust 
just as Adam was promised that if he sinned, he would return to the dust. All right, and, and that awaits all of us. But Paul says there's more to the story, right? That we're all made alive now in Christ. And he says, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. After he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the ones who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things under him so that God may be all in all. all right, so here Paul kind of lays it out for us, right? But he says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, right? And, and so the most basic, I think, thing we can say about death as Christians is that it's going to be destroyed. Death itself is going to die in Christ. Right, and so death itself is not eternal. It's not permanent. It doesn't define us. It's not our identity. Rather, as Paul says, Christ is our identity. And if Christ is alive, then we have this hope that we too will be alive. That's, for Paul, kind of the theological undergirding of our hope but yet I still wonder you know what of our death what do we say of the fact that we are going to die I think the best thing scripture maybe has to say in that regard um, again is from St. Paul and so just one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 uh, and the context here is, if you remember this chapter, Paul is praying about a thorn in his flesh. Right? Something's going on with Paul that he doesn't want to happen, and so he's praying to God to take away this thorn. Uh, he says he appealed three times to the Lord. But in verse 9, God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Uh, our death, I think, serves this purpose as much as anything. It teaches us that God's grace is sufficient for us, right? And that his power is made perfect in our weakness. Because when we die... We have nowhere else to turn but to God, right? We cannot save ourselves. The people around us cannot save us. Whatever idol that we love in this world will not save us, right? But it's in that moment of death when God teaches us to perfectly trust in him, right? As we depart this world and head into the next, we're taught to rely completely on God, 
right? And, and so death, in essence, completes our faith. It perfects our faith. Right? And so we can talk about death as a new beginning, not just that we're entering into this new world, which we are, but we're entering into a kind of faith where we're perfectly trusting in God. Right? We're not trusting in the things of this world or the people of this world, but when we die, we're given over completely to him. There's nothing left to hold on to. Right? And it's holding on to that goodness that's the promise of hope, right? That we hope in our faith and the resurrection of Christ, that when we cross over, that when we face this moment of death, that God's not going to forsake us. He's not going to leave us. And it teaches us what true faith is, right? God's power is made perfect in that weakness. Right, but in the same way, death is a portal into that which is so grand beyond our imagination. Uh, Luther uses this language in a sermon. He talks about death as a kind of birth. Right, When we are in the womb, uh, we're in this familiar, warm, uh, comfortable place, right? and then we're cast out into this grand world. But unless we go through that being cast out into this grand world, we don't know what we're missing. We are taking that moment of faith and trusting that God has something good for us. Right? In the same way, death for us is like leaving a kind of womb and going into something bigger and greater than we could imagine. Um, and we'll get into maybe what that looks like here next week. But it, what we know is that it's in the presence of God. It's in the love of God. Right? And so death becomes that gate in which we will see God. And so because we have that hope in Christ, right, because we know that he's been resurrected, we can go into that door, into that portal, and trust in him. Luther says, finally he gives a sermon on how to prepare for that moment of death. And he says, in that moment of death, you will have to let God be God and grant that he knows more about you than you do yourself. And I love that phrase from Luther, let God be God. Right? We should be spending our lives learning to trust that God is our loving Father. Right? Because as we learn that day by day, we learn that he loves us, that he cares for us, that when we get to that moment when it's time for us to leave this world, we're learning to let God be God. Right? We're learning to say, God, you have proven your faithfulness to me over and over in this world. And now I know you are about to take care of me into the next. That's ultimately how we have to approach our death, how we have to prepare. Right? That we're coming to the moment where we are letting God be God.
We will continue then on page 239. As we enter into the confession here, I'll give us a few more moments um, than maybe we normally would for silence and, and just reflection, uh, just so you're prepared. So while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God promises to heal us and forgive us. So let us confess our sin in the presence of God and of one another. Continue then on page 240. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For self-centered living and for failing to walk with humility and gentleness, holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For longing to have what is not ours and for hearts that are not at rest with ourselves, holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For misuse of human relationships and for unwillingness to see the image of God in others, holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For jealousies that divide families and nations and for rivalries that create strife and warfare, holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us for reluctance in sharing the gifts of God and for carelessness with the fruits of creation. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For hurtful words that condemn and for angry deeds that harm. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For idleness in witnessing to Jesus Christ and for squandering the gifts of love and grace. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. A God who is rich in mercy, loved us even when we were dead in sin, and made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Almighty God, strengthen you with the power through the Holy Spirit, that Christ may live in your hearts through faith. Amen. And now the peace of Christ be with you always. And also with you. Let's take a moment and greet each other with signs of, of God's peace. And now together, let us pray as our Lord has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. And now, Almighty and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless you now and forever. Amen. 
Go in peace. Christ has made you free. Thanks be to God.